Dr. Brian Cole. I'm a professor in the Department of Orthopedics and uh, associate chairman of the Department of Orthopedics. I'm also the managing partner of Midwest Orthopedics at Rush and the department chair of surgery at Rush Oak Park Hospital. You are listening to Interview with the Surgeon with the Surgeon Agent. On this episode of Interview with the Surgeon, we welcome Dr. Brian Cole, Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. In 2015, he was appointed as an Associate Chairman of the Department of Orthopedics at Rush. In 2011, he was appointed as Chairman of Surgery at Rush Oak Park Hospital. He also serves as the head of the Orthopedic Master's Training Program and trains residents and fellows in sports medicine and research. He lectures nationally and internationally and holds several leadership positions in prominent sports medicine society. He has published more than 1,000 articles and 10 widely read textbooks orthopedics and regenerative medicine. Orthopedics this week has named Dr. Cole as one of the top 20 sports medicine knee and shoulder specialists repeatedly over the last five years as selected by his peers. He is a head team physician for the Chicago Bulls, co-team physician for the Chicago White Sox, and DePaul University in Chicago. Hello everyone and thank you for joining Interview with the Surgeon. Today we welcome Dr. Brian Cole, professor and associate chairman of orthopedics at Rush. Doc, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. So let's just jump right into it. What were your goals and aspirations during your residency and how did those changed throughout your fellowship? I wanna commend you for uh, this initiative. I think it's awesome. It uh, represents a lot of things that I love to do day in and day out. And I think you're spot on with what you're trying to do here. So congratulations and I'm honored to be part of it, especially having seen some of the other people that you've had the privilege to interview. So uh, in residency, obviously as an orthopedic surgeon, we do an orthopedic surgery residency you kind of move along the four or five year process to figure out what you want to do when you're all done. And um, I didn't know uh, early on, I kind of gravitated towards sports medicine. So once I honed in on sports medicine, I used uh, my training was at the hospital for special surgery in New York. And I had always had an interest in academics. So that sort of came first. Uh, but once I gravitated towards a subspecialty of sports medicine, that kind of paves the way moving forward towards applying for fellowship, which I uh, ended up doing and completing in 1997 at the University of Pittsburgh. So I had four or five years in New York at the Hospital for Special Surgery and then uh, did a year of research in basic science there and then uh, a sports medicine fellowship. And as a resident, you're kind of, most of us are very open-minded and the goals are just to do as well as you can. And it's pretty simple. It's like a continuation of school. You want to do as well as you can in your rotations never want any doors to close because you didn't try hard enough or do well enough, quite frankly, because that's pretty much in your control or my control. It's the same tenant. I think people exercise when they're in school, trying to get into medical school and then trying to get into residency. So I really wanted to do as well as I could, even without knowing uh, what I wanted at any given time. And uh, then uh, it was, uh, you know, doing as well as I can to get to uh, do a good fellowship, which at that time it was a sports medicine, sports medicine fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, so, you know, honestly, my goals were to get as good a training as possible uh, to uh, keep the doors open and uh, plan for my future for whatever jobs would be available uh, after my fellowship. So during that fellowship year, can you kind of take us through your mentality heading into your first job search and how that perspective changed in the beginning years of your career? You know, I was a little bit unique in that, um, and I see this now with the fellows that we train, I was very lucky that I actually had a job offer before I started my fellowship. And that's not common, but I do see it from time to time. And as managing partner for my group at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush in Chicago, we will seek people who are in their fellowship and sometimes even residents, but um, it, it, with the, uh, under the pretense that when they're done, we would like them to join our group. During the sports medicine fellowship interviewing process, I interviewed at probably eight to 10 programs. And 
Uh, I am from Chicago and not necessarily desirous of coming back to Chicago at that time, but you know, it seemed like a, a palatable idea. And when I interviewed at Rush, uh, I interviewed with the sports program for the fellowship with uh, Dr. Bernie Bach, who was then the leader of the program, and now it's Nick Verma. And um, I, you know, he was just an amazing guy. He is an amazing guy. And um, I said, look, I don't want to train there, but I certainly would contemplate um, if I come back to Chicago and a job is available, joining the Department of Orthopedics at uh, Rush, Midwest Orthopedics specifically. And um, I think I was one of the first out of residency hires. So when I went to my fellowship at Pittsburgh, I think I had already signed my contract for my job in Chicago, which is like the best case scenario, assuming it's a good job because you go through fellowship and you don't have to worry about the job search. So I might've been a little bit of an anomaly uh, because the job search can be very stressful. I work with our fellows now, we train six people a year and uh, they usually spend the first half of the year trying to find the kind of job that they think they've been looking for. But my job, I knew I wanted sort of an academic private practice. I didn't wanna be uh, a hospital hire and I didn't want to be in a small private practice group. And I did look at different programs. I went to University of, San Francisco, University of San Francisco. I looked at a private practice in Palm Beach. I looked at some things in New York uh, where I was training residency. And the Chicago situation was ideal because it was in a growth uh, trajectory that I felt that I could plug in with my interests at the time and hopefully achieve the career that I, that was, that I seemed you know, to be pursuing at that time. So during your career, did you ever consider going to private practice or were you focused on academic all the way? Um, I, I didn't want to be just academic. You know, I, I when I went to medical school at the University of Chicago, I uh, applied for the MD MSTP program, which is an MD PhD program. And I'm not necessarily all researcher, but I'm not all clinician either. And at the time, I one of the things that made me gravitate towards orthopedics is that it has so much available from a basic science and translational perspective. In other words, it is one specialty in medicine that you can go to the office each and every day, identify a clinical problem potentially take it to a lab in a test tube or an animal and or clinical study, and then come back in short order and actually have a different decision or solution for a patient. So it was very pragmatic and there were just tremendous, a tremendous number of translational research opportunities. That's why I liked orthopedics. And I ended up getting out of the, or not doing the PhD program because I learned early that you can actually do research and not have a PhD. So I didn't want to honestly spend extra years. I'd already spent a year um, in basic science research and special surgery I was planning on doing. And I had done, and I went back to, I went during my medical school for my MBA in health administration. So that was two extra years before my fellowship. So um, four or five years for a PhD just didn't seem palatable to be honest with you. And I didn't see the value for me because I knew because of the role models I had seen that I could also do research. Uh, that being said, I was, uh, I've been very business-minded. Uh, those who are coming out of residency and fellowship really need to understand that uh, what you do will be a business. You'll have less decision-making and control if you uh, take a hospital job. That's just the nature of it. But for some, that's very palatable. Uh, you know you show up to work. There should be patients there. You don't have to worry about the, the, the minutiae day in and day out of running a practice. But for me, that was never really a consideration. I always uh, have been, had in my mind on business, on service. Um, and education and, and the only environment for me would that would uh, present that opportunity would be a private academic opportunity and there are not a lot of those out there but they're heavily sought after because those who are like me who have an interest in being clinically uh, excellent and, and, and busy and those who have an interest in doing research and educating residents and fellows uh, and then who have uh, their eye on sort of the business of medicine 
Um, that's about the only environment that I think you can embody all of those things uh, if that's the balance you choose. And this environment in Chicago was, it was pretty apparent to me day, day one that it would afford the opportunity if I pursued it to uh, allow me to engage in all those things. And truth be told, over 23 years, that's exactly what's happened. I've been really blessed in that regard. What would you say were some of the keys of your success that shaped your early career as you climbed to the top of the industry? Well, I, I kind of alluded to it early on. I think there's a couple of basic principles. Um, the first is, you know, there are many things in our lives that we can't control. And um, to perseverate on things we can't control doesn't often medically move the needle. Uh, but there are lots of things, and I think, you know, the majority of things, and as you choose your profession, that you can control. And I, I, once I recognized early, even in high school, that I wanted to be a, a physician, a, a doctor, not knowing exactly what at that time, um, I sort of had the attitude that if anything gets screwed up, it's going to be my fault. Uh, in other words, I, didn't, I felt that if I try hard and, 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 and was diligent, uh, but at the same time, kept a proper balance with exercise and social and everything else, but didn't screw it up where I would close a door otherwise. That was really important to me. Um, I think it's something, it's a lesson when I talk to my college kids, I take care of a lot of youth and, and, and do a lot of mentoring. And I think they have, young people have to understand that much of your future is truly in your hands. It's not that you can be anything you want to be in life. I'm, I was never going to be an NBA player. I'm five foot eight. Uh, I was never going to be a professional football player, you know, but I played sports, but I was, I, I knew how far I could go no matter how hard I tried. That being said, when it comes to sort of intellectual capacity and hard work ethic and integrity and learning when you put effort in what you get back and then also learning to be a consensus builder and work with other people and try to minimize the judgmental nature that all of us have and maximize your character. I felt that I was able to sort of, remain opportunistic and no, and to close the fewest amount of doors. So as a young person, no matter where you are in your training, I think it's really important to embrace what you think you have control over and just dig in. And we, you know, as students who are going towards some postgraduate work, in many ways, we're really privileged because you sort of, you know, unlike the person who's graduating college who's out there looking for a job, we knew once we got into school, we're going to school and you're in this tunnel and the economics were not very important other than the fact they just had to pay your bills, you know? So that, that's what was particularly important. So from my perspective, I just uh, needed to know I was in school and could keep going and doing the things I needed to do. Once I was done and getting in the job market and things were starting to come to fruition, I think, and it's how you, it also speaks to how you build your practice um, and making it easy for people to get access to you and always providing avenues. And it's, it's easier now than ever. So, you know, in my modern practice, my patients have my email, they have my cell phone number when need be, my website can easily reach out to me. You know, I think that what you learn in medicine is that it's more about the interpersonal aspects than it is about doing an operation or giving an injection or doing a procedure. Uh, you learn that uh, people are complex, that they often need reassurance, they need uh, education, and that's uh, above and beyond anything you and I learn from a, a graduate degree or other. So I try to really teach that from a mentoring perspective that people become a little more holistic in how they manage people uh, and never lose sight of that. Because I will tell you, being a doctor is the biggest privilege ever. There is there is never a day, even in these challenging times, that I go to work and say, I wish I was doing something else. It's, it is absolutely a gift that keeps on giving. And I think all of us who are hampered, for example, with a, a period of time where we couldn't do elective work, most of the people that I spoke to who went through that shared very similar feelings when it was taken away from us and we no longer could embrace that, that, that feeling of you want to help people, 
um, and that was taken away for a short period of time, the, the feeling of coming back to the table and again, taking care of patients was actually very, very meaningful and eye-opening. And I think it built uh, a lot of humility in all of us because while we often say that medicine is recession-proof, it wasn't virus-proof, you know? And um, I think there was a lot to learn. And I would tell you just, you know, I don't know if we'll get into it later, but, you know, this period of time, I think I'm a better doctor now than I've ever been. And I've always thought I was a pretty good doctor, but I think I've learned a lot more and I'm, I feel like I'm much better from lessons learned over the last six to seven months. What advice do you have for the graduating residents and fellows entering the professional job market for the first time? Well, I think, you know, one, one issue is most of us are victims of our experience. So they're going to have some perceptions of what life is like, perhaps based on where they've trained. You know, I often tell young people that think about their mentors and their experiences as uh, life's smorgasbord. In other words, you don't have to get the whole dish. You can take a little of this and a little of that. And one of the greatest uh, privileges of training in a, in a good program is that you're going to meet so many interesting people and learn how they're successful and learn about their failures. And it can help shape you. And you can, by taking little pieces of people around you who you meet, you can really grow your character. So I would say if, when you're training, um, the most important things are, you know, I know job, you want to have a job in your sights, but think about the benefits of today. Um, if we continue this focus on tomorrow, you're going to miss something very, very important. So in residency and fellowship, uh, I think there's two issues. There's learning from those around you and picking the bits and pieces that are really meaningful to you, piecing them together to help mature you and move you forward. Uh, so that when you do come out and you're, and you are working and, you're, and you have the opportunity to take care of patients, you can garner all the great things uh, from the people that you've had the opportunity to interact with. Uh, the second thing is focus on decision-making. Um, all of us, for example, who become surgeons, we get to be better surgeons year after year. That's just by default. I mean, that's how we learn. We learn by practice and practice doesn't, uh, training doesn't stop the day you finish your residency or fellowship. It, you're, I'm always training. I'm always a student. That's one of the greatest things about uh, being uh, a physician is that we never stop learning. The body of knowledge probably doubles every three to five years, for example, in orthopedic surgery. So just be a student and embrace that. That being said, decision-making, I think, is the hardest part. So being an active listener uh, as a physician and learning to, you know, the average physician interrupts their patient, I think, in seven seconds, Okay. Uh, before they even finish what they're saying. So um, there are certain methods that can make you a great doctor sitting down the same eye level with the patient, never having your back to the door, take your hand off the door handle, uh, always making sure that you've had the opportunity to ask them, did they have the uh, opportunity to express what their major concerns were? What is it that they want to see get better? What are their expectations? What would they like to see different? Um, and then if you order studies, make sure you look at those studies in the room and review them with the patient. And between then and the end of a visit, always asking the patient, is there anything that we didn't cover? Is there anything else you'd like to say? And you can do that type of interaction with a patient and learn that as a resident or fellow, and they will think you've spent two hours with them when it could be th three to five minutes. The flip side of it is if you leave those elements out, you could spend two hours with the patient and they will think you were never in the room. So it is absolutely about the quality of an interaction that leads to a satisfying uh, visit, both for you as a doctor and for the patient getting what they came for. Service is incredibly important in our space. We, in many ways, uh, doctors have become commoditized and your reputation really does matter. and It does help differentiate you. So when you come out into practice, most of your patients will be coming from some other patient. Now, mind you, they will almost all go to 
the internet and look for internet reputation and so forth, which is incredibly important. Uh, but even patients who are referred to me from other orthopedic surgeons, I know for a fact that they go online and assess and understand that. So then as far as the job goes, look, you have an open mind. You've learned what template you think works for you. But the job market every year is very, very different. And next year's job market, just because of what's going on recently, might be very different for a year. So I would say that orthopedics has enjoyed independent practice, uh, non-hospital owned, if you will, or non-hospital employed. More than most subspecialties were generally about 30% hospital uh, employed. Uh, if you want to be hospital employed, those jobs are out there. You'll have to choose if that's right for you. Uh, but if you are in any way entrepreneurial, value your independence, if controlling uh, additional sources of revenue, income, and so forth, I would say you should look for an, a private practice type job. Look for a private practice that's big enough, that has all of the uh, infrastructure you need. Um, small practices are particularly vulnerable these days because I think the best way to think about it is if you ski, you know, think about a, a ski mountain, in order for them to open up, you know, if one person is going to ski, you kind of have to have the same infrastructure for a, as you would for a thousand people, right? You know, to open up a practice, there's a certain baseline of what has to be in place that is extremely costly. And it requires enough revenue generating doctors to support that practice. So when you look at the demands of compliance, uh, the government, um, IT, HR, medical record, electronic medical record, outcomes assessment, the cost of doing business, the floor is roughly the same in, just don't turn the lights on, independent of the number of people in that practice. The vulnerability in practices are in small practices. It's not that they can't exist fundamentally, nor will you know, patients not want to go to them. You physically, economically, it is very challenging to run a small practice because of the cost of doing business. That being said, if you're looking in the private or private academic uh, milieu, um, having verticals and access to additional sources of revenue is incredibly important. You know, hospitals can pay you a good wage and that's because they get the benefits of the downstream revenue that you provide as a surgeon to a hospital. So that could be operating room facility fees, that could be MRI, PT, uh, the medical side, pharmacy, braces, DME. Hospitals get all of that for you when you're an employee. So you may say, well, my salary is pretty good. That's because they're getting multiples on the work you're doing from downstream revenue from patients. And you're getting paid off by an RVU basis. Alternatively, if you decide you wanna go in private practice with or without academics, if you have the opportunity to enjoy the verticals, in other words, you control the patient, you do the best you can in being excellent at being a doctor with or without surgery, just being a good doctor, and then also enjoy the business side that is acquired from the downstream revenues, if you will, that a patient really brings to the table. And that could be physical therapy, occupational therapy, MRI, CT, X-ray, DME, pharmacy, you know, virtually every aspect of patient care you could potentially have some access to and, and I believe do it better than others can do because it's a much tighter environment. What advice do you have for the graduating class this year with most of these national conferences being canceled and really going online? And they're trying to figure out the whole networking aspect of doing it virtually. You know, we have, uh, you know, the world has changed and uh, we've heard that a thousand times. Um, we will bounce back to something that represents what was we were like before, but I think there'll be some I'm, 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 I look at it more opportunistically and say, look, what good is going to come of this? I used to travel 25 to 30 times a year to teach nationally and internationally. I would fly to countries to give two lectures, uh, turn around in 36 hours and come back. I would be away from my family. I would be away from my practice. Um, it had a huge economic impact. It had an impact on my recovery. If you're an athlete, you understand about recovery, sleep deprivation, and all these other things that go along with it. Uh, it was enormous. Um, I think that we can be very effective 
educators like you and I are doing today. And you can do it on at your leisure. Um, you can do it on demand. Uh, so a lot of that is going to be, I think, here to stay. Um, you will be much more efficient. Uh, that being said, I think all of us feel the pain of the lack of personal interaction. And we're going to probably have to figure out when the world opens up safely, how we seek, how we're going to achieve that balance again. But I, I think it'll be different. I think we won't forget the efficiencies gained of, uh, I've often felt the meetings, certain, certain careers, I say, well, look, we have to be face to face. And I never really understood it. I think now the technology is so easy uh, that uh, you and I can interact and have an effective interaction and actually get a business deal done. I could teach you something uh, as effective as being next to me. I can review x-rays, I can review MRIs, I could interview a patient in front of you. So I'm pretty confident that I can deliver a high quality educational experience. We're gonna be doing our interviews for fellowship virtually. This will be the first time ever. Probably we'll have some hiccups, but I'm, I'm, I feel pretty good about it. And I can split it into two nights and I don't have to interrupt my day of work or my interrupt my day with my kids or my family. And I can still go to the gym and I can still have a couple of phone calls and do all kinds of things and shave off hours of the day. So. I too, like all of us, get a little fatigued from these uh, video conference calls and so forth. But I say net-net has taught all of us that we can be really effective and efficient uh, at the same time. I, I think none of us, though, should be uh, short-sighted in terms of what we're, we've lost from the personal connection. Uh, there are a lot of people right now who are uh, very isolated and may not even know it. There's a lot of mental health issues that you and I probably are unaware of and people were predisposed. So I think it requires all of us to have a level of sensitivity to understand what's going on in the world, uh, especially in people who are very accustomed to having travel integrated into their lives and face-to-face contacts. I think there are benefits and psychological plays that people probably don't even know because it's just the way they function. And having that completely absent from their lives, I think it probably has a bigger impact than people recognize. Uh, I think, the other point is why we still are navigating this uncertainty as we live with COVID. What I found particularly helpful is to make decisions and be definitive with those decisions. Because we kept saying, well, we have to be nimble. We got to be able to pivot. There's, it's uns- you know, these are unprecedented times. You know, we're all sick of hearing these terms. The bottom line is you and I spend all this time planning for something and a week later, new information makes us change it. So I've learned that being definitive with a decision uh, look, if you're 40 to 50% sure of something, just make a decision and stick with it. Even if the world changes, at least you have a plan going forward. I think it's the lack of planning that has really uh, introduced a variable that people underestimate. So we are used to being able to plan. We're a planning society and we're all very busy and pretty sort of uh, uh, our lives are relatively structured. We've lost a lot of that. And in an effort to remain nimble, we've lost a certain aspect of our of our ourselves that leads to good productivity and, and a healthy psychology. So I would say the one thing I've learned is make a decision, stick by it. Even if you could have done something different, you're still going to make it a good, it'll still be good. And I've learned that with my managing of the NBA, my associated with major, major league baseball, I've managed independent baseball. You know, we, by one week later, we weren't always perfect, but we stuck to it and we had a plan and it seemed to help a lot in terms of actually getting things done and keep, keeping people right side up in an otherwise pretty challenging time. Can you talk about your involvement with the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago White Sox? I've been the head team physician for about 16 years for the Bulls and a co-team physician for the Chicago White Sox. As head team physician, uh, we're typically responsible for all things medical and uh, working with the athletic trainer and strength and conditioning, coaching. We deal with drafts. We deal with the combine. We deal with, obviously, with injury. 
a lot of medical issues, uh, a lot of interpersonal issues, basically the entire spectrum of the health um, burden uh, uh, for a professional team. We also have to learn how to risk stratify, how to uh, uh, look at an athlete and assess risk for contracts, whether they're short or long. Um, and we're not strategists. Uh, we can't get in, we can't be huge fans. We can't let any of that sort of get in the way of our decision making. And it's mostly based upon sort of interpersonal relationships and, you know, unadulterated commitment. Um, it's been one of the most enjoyable things in my life, uh, not because necessarily the ego gratification, but because it, it gives me balance. You know, we, you and I didn't talk much about balance and it's something that I always like to convey to residents and fellows who are learning, you know, um, there's often an attitude uh, that I'm going to work really, really hard now, uh, be a net saver, put in the bank, and then later on, I'll start to enjoy the things that I really want to do in life. And sometimes that goes along with gaining 15, 20 pounds and not working out and not able to establish a healthy relationship with someone, uh, not being a good enough parent, being available for your kids. You sacrifice a lot. And I'd say early in my career, um, I had some lessons learned that I, that I, was, I became aware of, fortunately, very quickly. And um, I, I right-sized and right-sided myself um, early, and I think early enough, but it was all about balance. And whether it's physical or spiritual or intellectual or emotional, whatever leg of the stool you want to focus on, I would tell you that, you know, and now we know this, we know this more now today than ever before, you know, live for today and plan for tomorrow. And I'm not trying to be excessively philosophical, but as a resident or a fellow, we're so used to being in this tunnel. And, and, and while at the same time you're trying to be excellent and not screw it up and, and close doors, doing, exercising that philosophy at the expense of your health and your, your, your interactions with others is going to also lead to compromise and a lack of opportunities. And it's, gonna not, it's also not sustainable. So um, I think you value uh, those kinds of things rather than the balance in your checkbook or your checking account and spending wisely, but trying to always be a bit of a net saver, planning for your future economically, uh, working with smart people from a financial point of view, uh, protecting your assets, uh, aligning yourself with really smart people who can help you do that because that's generally not our strength, uh, and uh, focusing on balance. Uh, and preserving time for yourself. You know, every Tuesday and Thursday is my time. I have a personal trainer who comes to my house because I save an hour rather than going to a gym. Even though I'll do that during the week, I know my time is six to seven in the morning. My assistant doesn't schedule anything during that time. That's my time. I own it. And I've been able to live by that. Uh, there's a lot of other things I could share with you. And, you know, if you, if people are really interested, I've done a TED talk on this topic and um, it's on my website, Brian Cole, MD, but I have a lot of passion for sharing my lessons learned because I was far from perfect and I'm far from perfect now. Um, but I think that all of us have something to share as we kind of learn along the way. And it's again, that mentorship model, let's all try to learn the, the greatest things that we've learned along the way. And, and our opportunity to give back is to share those with our young generation. Can you touch on your involvement with the AANA? Um, I'm, uh, Blessed to be the president of the Arthroscopy Association of North America. That we have a, a number of specialty societies and in uh, orthopedics. Uh, the, 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 the head organization is the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, uh, and I've been really lucky to have leadership positions in virtually all of those. But this is a, a unique time to be president of an organization that I have a lot of passion for, and the main reason that I um, have sort of taken a deep dive into the Arthroscopy Association of North America is that it recapitulates a lot of things that you and I are talking about, this concept of mentorship and helping young people who really want to do things and, and, and make an impact. Um, I, I am largely who I am today because I had mentors who created a path 
that provided opportunity. They didn't give it to me. I still had to earn it. And I had to be excellent in what I did. And again, if I wasn't, it was my fault, not because there was any positive opportunity. Similarly, there's a lot of young people who are hungry for opportunities for leadership. And I meet people weekly who are amazing teachers and amazing thinkers. And I want those people to have an audience. So um, that Anna, the Arthroscopy Association, is actually that type of organization. Uh, we have historically been known for innovation techniques. Uh, now we're advancing towards performance-based assessments, meaning not only do you fill out a multiple choice test to say how, how much you know about something, but we're actually, uh, we're actually moving towards the way airline pilots learn how to fly with simulators and so forth. I mean, when would you ever expect your surgeon to watch someone for four years and then walk in the operating room and do the operation? There, there really is a disconnect there. And that's been the, historically, that's been our education. We have this other trend, uh, concept of sort of see one, then do one, and then teach one. And that's very important. And that is a, a very well-preserved tenant. But if you don't get enough frequency of seeing something, doing something, and teaching something, you're going to need a lot of that time when you come out to actually get excellent at what you do. So performance-based assessment and training is really important, something that we have not done a good job of uh, in our own in, in managing and policing ourselves. So we're good at teaching people how to take a multiple-choice test. We're not so good at assessing skills. So uh, skills training is another area that we're particularly uh, invested in. And then finally, it's research. Uh, research is really the, the pinnacle of uh, progressing our field. As I mentioned earlier, orthopedics is replete with translational research opportunities. So giving people the tools to actually do a study, to collaborate, either basic science study or a clinical study, and allowing them to, um, to enjoy the benefits of, of being on a podium and teaching someone else, you know, uh, to publishing a paper, seeing their name in print, and knowing that they make a difference and they're being quoted for the work and their thoughts, that's incredibly uh, ego gratifying. So uh, I like to provide those kinds of opportunities for young people, and that's something I'm particularly committed in doing. And we don't only do that at our program at, uh, at Rush, Midwest Orthopedics, on a regular basis through our trainees. Uh, we can do this in a big way to our 6,000 members for the Arthroscopy Association of North America. So it's a super uh, huge privilege to be in a position of leadership, but it's not just me. I'm surrounded by amazingly intelligent people uh, in the boardroom who um, all have a voice and it's, it's based on consensus, not uh, just individual leadership. Can you give us some insight into your podcast called Sports Medicine Weekly? Years ago, uh, I was in, in the locker room after a Bulls game, and um, we, I, was work, I was talking to the, the voice of the Bulls, Steve Cashel. He had been the, uh, managed Bulls radio for a long time, and he's got a great voice, and he's really good on radio. And, and I said, look, I've published eight textbooks. I have more than, at the time, more than 600 papers, and um, I feel like there's an audience I would really like to reach which is more of the layperson because people come in the office and they always have questions. And I love either being able to answer them or being able to find the answers to their questions and being a resource. And I just started thinking, how can I, how can I reach more people? And there's a lot of ways to do that. And uh, we decided then on uh, ESPN that we would start a radio show uh, called Sports Medicine Weekly. And uh, we started 10 years ago. It was eight years on ESPN. Now we're on the score radio Sunday mornings. From seven to seven thirty, but more importantly, radio. Only so many people listen to radio. This is a way to create a podcast that's uh, uh, reasonably edited. That's uh, on uh, uh, YouTube. It's on uh, Apple Radio, uh, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and you know the normal places that people go to hear podcasts. And my goal for the rest of 2020 is to really grow our podcast so that we can only we can entertain people's questions. 
but also just deliver something that's really informative. It could be youth sports. It could be sports and nutrition. It could be the legalities behind sports. It could bring out a professional athlete. Um, it could have nothing to do with professional athletes. It could be on tissue donation and on a lot of things on COVID on how to remain active, how much fat you should have in your diet. Uh, let's talk about cardiovascular disease. I mean, things that are like on everyone's mind. Um, those are the things that I want. That's really easy, digestible and understandable. And, uh, so I have a lot of passion for it because it's another outlet for me to teach people. Uh, the other thing is we do have sponsors and all the proceeds, uh, everything for me is sort of a full circle in life. Um, uh, all the proceeds go to support research, orthopedic research. So um, that actually makes it even better because we are secondarily supporting a mission to further the science of translational research in orthopedics. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Interview with the Surgeon. Until next time, stay focused and keep following your dreams.